bro, let's go out this weekend. There's a crazy event happening. There'll be a ton of chicks. Let's just go have fun and let go a little. Yeah, that ain't my kind of fun. You know what's fun for me? Waking up early, hitting the gym, spending time with my creator, building the life I desire, and more importantly, becoming a better version of myself every damn day. Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico, and I'm here, as always, with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you doing? I'm very good. Just uh, did a move before doing another move soon, so hectic times. <laughs> yes. Uh, again, I feel like we've been saying this every time we've put out an episode lately, but uh, we haven't put out an episode in a while. Uh, and it's, yeah, exactly. There's hectic times. But Sam and I, I think, have some really good stuff uh, planned coming over the horizon. I think we have a lot of good ideas uh, for some different things we can talk about going forward that are not just limited to our sort of ongoing series of a uh, uh, of going through the Silmarillion, which uh, is what you're going to hear today. So today we're talking about chapters three, four, and five of the Silmarillion um, in my edition it's about uh it's about 15 or 16 pages um chapter 3 is titled of the coming of the elves and the captivity of melkor chapter 4 is titled of thingol and melian and uh, chapter 5 which is of eldamar and the princes of the eldalai if you recall where we last left off the um, Valar over in in uh, Valinor are they they've created the two trees. So uh, they're eagerly awaiting the coming of the elves or the firstborn, as they're called often uh, at this point in time, uh, who are going to be sent by Iluvatar down to Arda. Now the Valar, as we discussed last time, they don't know where, they don't know when, uh, but the elves are going to. Appear. And it is during this time that the uh, Valar are, quote, or are dwelt in bliss in the light of the trees beyond the mountains of Amon. Um, so they're out in, you know, Valinor, uh, in the light of the trees, just sort of having a chill time. Uh, during the same time, all of Middle-earth is in a twilight. There's basically no light there. The sun and the moon don't exist yet, and the light from the trees doesn't reach them. So there's only starlight. Um, so it's perpetual darkness and all of the Valar completely neglect it except for Yavanna and Orame. Yavanna already made like the plants of the world and a lot of the animals. Um, but because there's no light, these things would all die. So Yavanna instead, uh, casts a spell on them or casts a sleep on them. So they're all sort of frozen in time and stasis to awake again when there's light on uh, middle earth again. And Orome, the hunter, just goes around Middle-earth uh, shooting evil creatures of Melkor. So everyone else is negligent. Yes. And uh, at the same time, we're also told that while the, the Valar are sort of chilling in uh, Amon, in Valinor, uh, our old buddy Melkor is plotting and scheming as he is uh, as he's wont to do. We So it's written here... In the north, Melkor built his strength, and he slept not, but watched and labored, and the evil things that he had perverted walked abroad, and the dark and slumbering woods were haunted by monsters and shapes of dread. And in Otumno he gathered his demons about him, those spirits who first adhered to him in the days of his splendor, and became most like him in his corruption. Their hearts were of fire, but they were cloaked in darkness, and terror went before them. They had whips of flame. Balrogs they were named in Middle-earth in later days. And I would just quickly note that a really key word here is uh, the evil things that he had perverted walked abroad. Again, Melkor can't actually create anything. Only Iluvatar can create stuff. This is getting into some of that, you know, like Catholic theology with Tolkien. Only God can create things. So all of these creatures aren't his own creations. They were once good things that he had perverted through his evil. 
Exactly, yeah. And that's we're going to talk a lot more about that soon with the creation of the orcs, uh, which is going to happen later in this very chapter. I just wanted to read that passage because it's also cool that this is where you get the creation of uh, Balrogs. So Balrogs are, are just like the one you see in uh, in Fellowship of the Ring that Gandalf uh, does, does battle with. Uh, you get a sense reading this how truly... Uh, truly epic and consequential that battle is, right? Because Gandalf is a Maiar, and the... Uh, Balrog the is Balro- a corrupted Maiar. Exactly. The Balrog is a corrupted Maiar, uh, corrupted by Melkor himself, right? So, so really, a Balrog is... It's it's at a sort of similar, like, I guess, level in the cosmology as Sauron is, right? It's not, yeah. it's not sort of... Uh, you know, planning and scheming and having an army like Sauron, but it's it, just like Sauron. It is sort of a an evil Maiar, or I suppose a a corrupted Maiar. And and speaking of Sauron, I believe this is the first mention of him on the next page. Or next indeed, page it is. Edition. So it's 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 actually the very next paragraph. Yeah. Uh. So the next paragraph describes. Uh. Note note that it says in the north, Melkor built his strength. So his his fortress is. Tumno. In the far northwest of the world. Exactly. And there is another fortress and armory, and it's called Angband, A-N-G-B-A-N-D, and you have this sentence, that stronghold was commanded by Sauron, lieutenant of Melkor. So, you learn here that uh, in the very, very early days here, uh, before the elves even existed, Sauron is uh, Melkor's second-in-command, and he is in control of this uh, this fortress, Angband. Now, Sam, I did want to discuss briefly, this is something that I think we're, we're going to come back to, and it's something we've probably mentioned in the past as well. Yeah, uh, for going back decades, a common uh, critique of Tolkien's writing and world building is that the good guys are all in the northwest of the world, or the, the west of the world broadly, including Valinor, but specifically the northwest of the world. You know, the Shire is in the northwest, and then all the bad guys are in the east, and that you have sort of Europe in the northwest, the good guys, the hobbits, and then over in the east, you have, you know, uh, not just Sauron, but also even further east are his corrupted army, um, you know, with elephants and stuff. That's way more prominent in the movies and the books, but that's still a thing. And there is a semi-fair criticism that this is a sort of Eurocentric approach, which posits the East, uh, you know, non-European lands is evil and the West is good. Yeah. And and I'll say quickly, though, also you get in some of Tolkien's letters, him more or less saying like, well, yes, of course I modeled the Shire off of England. I love England. That's where I'm from. Yeah. The positioning of Utumno, the ultimate evil place in the far northwest of the world, and Angband, the secondary ultimate evil place, also in the northwest of the world, sort of contradicts the idea that he put all the good guys in the northwest and all the bad guys in the east. The elves also come from the east. That's another key thing to note, is that it says, you know, Quivienen is gone. That's the birthplace of the elves. But where it probably was, was in the far east. Oh, right. It, no, it, it explicitly was, right? They travel They travel west. But... um. Yeah, so so that's that's the thing I think is that there is definitely truth to the idea that uh, like the Shire is is England basically, right? And it's in the northwest of the world, like England. Which and then then there's also some other stuff like how Gondor is sort of implied to be sort of like. I mean, it's like Rome. It's sort of, uh, and you have in his writings that there are some indications that he was kind of thinking that it was sort of Mediterranean in some ways, right? So you have a little bit of the uh, of a real world mapping that way, which I think kind of lends itself to again, I think a fair critique about all of the bad stuff being in the east because if you're mapping like gondor and the shire and a few of the other places onto the real world it it sort of stands to reason that you would map the whole place more or less and then that i think uh leads to a pretty unfortunate conclusion but when you i think that part of that is also that lord of the rings is like obviously his most well-known story if you are looking back in the whole mythology of the world there is no sort of 
like there's no ironclad rule that like bad stuff is east and i'm not and also by saying like we'll see angband and otumno are in the north and northwest that's also not saying that like bad stuff has to come from the north or northwest like he's not certainly not making like you know a, a, like an anti-eurocentric point with that right there's i think that they're just that's just not an appropriate framework yeah there think. isn't a strict geographical determinism to this no th- there isn't there isn't uh and and you also by the way what we're saying now is again this is also something that comes up in his letters because people pointed out to him in letters like why is all the bad stuff in the east like is it supposed is like sauron supposed to be this like you know uh khrushchev or someone and he basically said like no that's absolutely not what i was intending to do uh and he's and he brings up like in fact in my greater mythology uh the evil stuff is in the north and northwest but you know he hadn't published it then, of course. In fact, he didn't publish it in his lifetime. Uh, but nonetheless, this is all sort of a, a way to say, though, that we uh, th- that the idea of the um, Entmoot podcast rejects the Eurocentric geographical determinism thesis of Tolkien's work. Th- this is our official stance. Yeah, this is our official take. Well, anyway, that is not. That's it's really not even directly related to this, but this is the first mention of this this great fortress in the northwest, uh, which which uh, is going to stick around for all of the the first age. Uh, it's Angband is sort of his his headquarters uh, for for Inotumno for most of most of this. In fact, if you remember when we talked about uh, Baron and Luthien, which we're going to talk about again when we get to it in the Silmarillion, uh, a lot of that is set in Angband because uh, Baron has to infiltrate it. Uh, and uh, Baron and Luthien infiltrated and uh, come face to face with with Melkor, but nonetheless, let's continue. Um, so uh, Orome and Yavanna go to the, the Valar, and they're like, you know, the children of Iluvatar are going to wake soon. We think, although we cannot guess within narrow kind of days the hour appointed. And when they awake, they'll be in this mostly dark world, surrounded by evil monsters and like you know, the the Prince of Evil himself. This seems like a bad situation. And then Tulkas, goaded character, says, uh, you know, we got to make war swiftly. <laughs> um, have we not rested from strife over long? And is, it, is not our strength now renewed? And then, you know, Manwe, at the bidding of Manwe, Mando speaks. And he basically says, it's not the time yet. They haven't awoken yet. And it's also prophesied that they shall awake um, in... Uh, in darkness and shall first look upon the stars. Uh, so that's an important detail before they even do it, that it is prophesized, because as we know, you know, Mandos can sort of tell the future um, that that's going to happen. Then Varda comes out and she's like, okay, the elves are going to come soon. You know, even though we can't really directly intervene and they have to be born into darkness, we can still make the world a little more uh, hospitable. Um, and she goes, sees the innumerable stars. That's a phrase that gets used a lot in this chapter, I like it a lot. Uh, faint and fair, and then through great labor, greatest of all of the works of the Vo- of the Valar since they're coming into Arda, she makes new stars out of the silver of Telperion, one of the trees. So she takes light from the silver tree and she makes new stars. It lists all the stars. It's also worth mentioning that all of these stars exactly line up with stars in the real world, which makes sense because this is supposed to be a history of Earth, just a really old one, and an invented history. Truly an incomprehensible attention to detail with some of that stuff. <laughs> so, uh, now uh, the, the time has, has come for the elves to awaken. Uh, Luvatar uh, presumably decides, all right, it's time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send him down and they're going to wake up. Uh, and and be confused and in a new in, a, in you know come into existence for the very first time. Um, so uh, Sam, I'll let you do the honors. I know that this is like your favorite passage uh, from the Silmarillion, probably. It is told that even as Varda ended her labors, and they were long, when first Menelmacar strode up the sky, and the blue fire of Halloween flickered in the mists above the borders of the world. In that hour, the children of the earth awoke the firstborn of Iluvatar. By the starlight mirror of Quivienen, water of awakening, they rose from the sleep of Iluvatar. And while they dwelt yet silently by Quivienen, their eyes beheld, first of all things, the stars of heaven. Therefore, they have ever loved the starlight and have revered Varda Elantari above all the Valar. And then I'll continue a little bit just because I also love this passage. 
in the changes of the world, the shapes of lands and of seas have broken and remade. Rivers have not kept their courses, neither have mountains remained steadfast. And to Quivienne there is no returning. I have that line underlined, and I have for, had that underlined for a long time. But it is said among the elves that it lay far off the east of Middle-earth and northward, and it was a bay in the inland sea of Helkar, and that sea stood where at aforetime the roots of the mountains of Illuin had been before Melkor overthrew it. Yeah, so just like Sam was saying, they come into existence in this place, Quivienen, uh, where it's dark, there's, there's water, and all they see is the stars, and so they, the elves love the stars for forever after. It's so beautiful. And then they, um, and then they, you know, an indeterminate amount of time. I think it's implied upon, you know, when you reread this and think about it more, that the the amount of time they're there, just walking around, is supposed to be a really long time. Again, at this point in the story, there isn't really the passage of time the way we think about it because there's no like sun and moon or like passage of days so everything yeah and elves also don't elves also don't die of of old age or anything yeah. so. so they also perceive time really differently but it, yeah. uh, for a long time they're walking around then they make speech and they make song and they start naming things and talking to each other and they realize that they're the only creatures that can speak and name things so they name themselves the quendi signifying those that speak with voices for as of yet they met no other living things that spoke or sang. That's right. And that's also where you get the the title of this, uh, you know, this main work that's part of the Silmarillion, the Quenta Silmarillion. Quenta is the same root as, uh, as Quendi, you know, like Elven, basically. Yeah. So while they are, uh, you know, poking around in uh, Quivianen and uh, singing songs and naming things, so- someone happens upon them. Yeah, Orame pulls up because he's been, you know, running or not running around, riding his horse around Nahar, who I always sort of thought reminded me a lot of Sleipnir from Norse mythology, a sort of similar described horse. That's all you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I've also I've been I've been I've been reading a, a really great book about Viking history recently, The Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price, which actually quotes Tolkien in it. But yeah, no, he happens upon the elves, and he goes, "Oh my God, these are the guys we've been waiting for," and then it. Also notes, and this is a passage I love, uh, in the beginning, the elder children of Iluvatar were stronger and greater than they have since become, but not more fair. For though the beauty of the Quendi in the days of their use was beyond all other beauty that Iluvatar has caused to be, it is not perished, but lo- but lives in the West, and sorrow and wisdom have enriched it. And I actually think that's a little view into Tolkien's worldview, where sort of sadness and depression are not purely bad and the negative aspects of life are 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 a key part of life. Well, that's Nienna too. Yeah, it's also Nienna and that that's also a little bit of that sort of small c conservative worldview. Maybe that's the wrong way of describing it. I I don't know what it is, but there's this sort of I, I wouldn't call it austere, but this sort of um rejection of just chasing hedonism or you know uh the pursuit of maximizing utils yeah absolutely no you're you're onto something there for sure i mean i mean christ died for our sins right so like the idea of suffering if it's toward a if if it's for sort of a cause of some kind that suffering is often virtuous is like a cornerstone of christian theology i think right yeah suffering or self-sacrifice uh are uh are themselves virtuous if, you know, toward a, a righteous cause of some kind. I mean, that's the the emphasis on martyrdom, for example, which Tolkien, I know, you know, that was very important to him. He considered his his mother to be a martyr for her faith. Um, and so I think that, yeah, that that's all a kind of traditional, I guess, worldview that, that does fit in with, like you're saying, small c conservative, but it's, I think it's a very Christian worldview as well. And I mean, it's not just Christian, of course. I mean, like the idea... The idea that life is suffering, I associate first with Buddhism. Yes, totally. But totally, that totally. is like really a, a cornerstone if you consider that sort of the 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 act that is at the center of Christian theology is Jesus sacrificing himself, right, and and suffering, uh, and that you know we are all supposed to sort of emulate Jesus. So yeah, I think that you know you're definitely onto something there. So so really in in, in how it's told to us, the reader, Orame first discovers the elves, but it's revealed that actually Melkor was the one who had really first known that they had come into existence. And that's because 
like Sauron in uh, Lord of the Rings, Melkor always has eyes and ears everywhere. He has lots of spies and, and people sort of snooping around. And uh, so he first discovers uh, that the the uh, firstborn or the Quendi or the elves, same all the same thing, have uh, have come into existence. The elves had also started to notice before Orome arrived that when uh, when some of them would sort of wander astray, right, that they would notice that that oftentimes they they just wouldn't come back, and so that kept them, of course, in sort of a perpetual state of fear of like what is lurking out there that is you know that is taking uh taking our brothers and sisters it became sort of a part of their their lore uh this is also the doing of of melkor uh sort of of you know it's not explicitly told i don't believe but of you know sort of evil spirits and stuff communicating with the with the quendi it becomes their lore that those who disappear they were sort of captured by a hunter right and this of course is melkor uh anticipating that Orome will find them. He wants the, the Quendi to be afraid of, of Orome and to not accompany him uh, if he, you know, if Orome wants to take them to Amon or Valinor. And um, you actually get, uh, the, I love this detail, this says, uh, indeed, the most ancient songs of the elves, of which echoes are remembered still in the West, tell of the shadow shapes that walked in the hills above Quivienen or would pass suddenly over the stars, and of the dark rider upon his wild horse that pursued those that wandered to take them and devour them. There is a sort of dual purpose to what Melkor is doing there. On the on the one hand, he is making the uh, through his you know agents basically is making the uh, elves assume that that they're being captured by the hunter, who of course later turns out to be Orme, when on the other hand, really what is happening is Melkor's agents are abducting the elves. Doing all sort of perverted shit to them. Yeah, torturing them. You get here, this passage is, uh, describes the creation of the orcs. Orcs, of course, being the same uh, creatures that you see in Lord of the Rings. All those of the Quendi who came into the hands of Melkor were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved, and thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs in envy and mockery of the elves, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the orcs had life and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar, and naught that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainulindale before the beginning, so say the wise. And deep in their dark hearts, the orcs loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. This, it may be, was the vilest deed of Melkor and the most hateful to Iluvatar. So let's compare the creation of the orcs to uh, the creation of the dwarves, because I think that that will bring a fruitful comparison, because both cases, I think, are sort of one of the, uh, you know, divine beings, whether it's Aule or Melkor, uh, creating, or I, I suppose what they would think of as creating uh, a, a a new race, right, of beings. How each of those is, is portrayed is illustrative of a lot of things. But if, if you recall, Aule creates these, these beings, uh, certainly not out of envy or of mockery. Uh, it's only because he's lonely, basically. And he wants, uh, you know, a bunch of people who are sort of molded in his image and want to talk about, uh, you know, rocks and stuff with him and mining, right? And Iluvatar's reaction to that, I think, is uh, is really informative because Iluvatar is basically like, man, I wish you hadn't done that. Like, you know, I'm the only one who's supposed to be able to bring, you know, to give life to things. But it's clear that these things are alive. They're, you know, weird, but like they are alive and I will sort of, you know, give them my blessing uh, to be my stepchildren, basically. They can live sort of alongside the elves and, the, and, and men, although they will always be a little weird. Whereas orcs, as you 
here, as we saw in that passage just now, are, first of all, not really beings of their own. Like, they are in that, you know, they ostensibly move around and, and think at some level, right? But they're not really free in the way that men and elves and dwarves as well, I think, are, at least in the cosmology of this world. The I think the phrase in envy and mockery is... Uh, is perfect. Uh, he's Melkor, as always, is envious of Iluvatar's ability to to create and to breathe life into things. Either way, Orome arrives, and they're you know a little scared at first, but he basically convinces. He like tells them, "No, no, I'm not going to." Well, they also right see now. the light of Amon in his in his face. That's right. He emanate he emanates like literal because he is an angel, like literal angelic yeah. light. Where they're like, "Oh, this is sick." Yeah, exactly. Like they, they basically they see him and they they are like, this can't be a bad guy. Like Ted Bundy's neighbors, like he was such a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, this can't be it's a, a bad great guy. Comp. Is it awesome? <laughs> I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong. The with young that people comparison. love true crime podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, Orme basically says, "Hey, you guys want to come with me? I got me, me and all my, me and all my boys and girls back in uh, Amman." Like we're angels. Wait, have we you hang seen? Out. Have you seen that TikTok? The one where it's like the German dude being like, "You want to go out this weekend? There's gonna be a, a crazy party. All the girls are gonna be there. Lots of drinking." That's literally Orme and, and the elves. You really need to see the video and like what he looks like. But I'll send it to you after this. Okay. So Orme invites the Quendi to come back with him to Amon, where it is not dark and scary, and where they can't be uh, abducted and tortured by Melkor. <laughs> <laughs> disfigured irreparably in an epigenetic capacity which carries on through their bloodlines yes so after orame comes back to um he comes back to valinor and he's like guys big news the elves are here and they're like and then tolkos is is, is stoked because he's like okay time for war this is going to be awesome truly the dick cheney of <laughs> of valinor we also really quickly um the Emu Podcast extends our condolences to the friends and family of the late Silvio Berlusconi, <laughs> who recently passed away. Can you keep this in the pod? Yes. Listen to our Hard Right Hobbits episode to hear some discussion of Silvio Berlusconi and yeah. his, shall we say, misadventures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting guy. And and with our condolences to uh, Mr. Berlusconi expressed... Um, one thing he didn't like was war, you know, you know, and, and you get you get this a lot with his, his appeasement. Yeah, that's a with, great connection with his appeasement with Putin. Um, uh, <laughs> this is unlike Tulkas, who loves war and is super stoked to go to war with Melkor and the big baddies. They ultimately win. It ends with Tulkas wrestling uh, Melkor. You can guess who wins that one. Melkor is brought back in chains, where he is to be kept in captivity for uh, three ages. Before they decide what to do with him next, he can summon for peace, so on and so forth. The other relevant detail here is that, nevertheless, the Valar did not discover all the mighty vaults and caverns hidden within with deceit far into the fortresses of Angband and Atumno. Many evil things still lingered there, and others were dispersed and fled into the dark and roamed in the waste places of the world, awaiting a more evil hour. And Sauron they did not find. So, Sauron and the really evil shit buried way under the earth is still out there. And uh, Angband is in uh, full fashion. Atumno's wrecked, but they never found Angband. That's right. Yeah, which is why Angband is the one that uh, I, I always associate with most of the story with uh, Melkor living there. Spoilers. Uh, he's not going to be in captivity forever. Yeah, he, he um, gets out. Yeah, I, I, Listen, I just think we need to see the flight logs to Angband. Yeah, yeah. When you see the flight logs to Angband. Who was going? Wait, hold up. Noam Chomsky showing up on the Angband flight logs. What are you doing there? You know what's inc- you know what's insane is I actually heard that Malcolm Gladwell was seen in, in Angband. Wow. Yeah, he actually wrote most of the tipping point while in uh, Melkor's throne room. <laughs> yeah, I was about I was about to say Black Swan and getting confused with uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who to his credit would a never plagiarize anything or b hang out with Jeffrey Epstein. I don't know what Jeffrey Epstein has to do with anything. I was talking about the flight logs. Oh, true, true, true. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know. My mind goes to weird places. Just like the Valar go to weird places in battle and then afterwards, you're killing it with these segments. Uh, go to a council where they decide, what are we going to do about the Quendi? You know? <laughs> are we going to just let them all in? What are we going to do with our borders? <laughs> <laughs> truly the Angela Merkel. <laughs> yes, truly the Angela Merkel. Uh, let's like keep him in Turkey for a while. 
they ultimately decide to um, summon the three leaders of the elves to come to Valinor. The strategy here is we're going to bring them over here. The three leaders are going to be like, oh my God, this place is, you know, heaven on earth. Um, everyone else needs to pull up, which is what happens. And then they go back to their people, their respective tribes, and uh, they advertise it. And these three tribes are... So you have the Vanyar, you have the Noldor, and you have the Teleri. Uh, the Teleri are by far the largest group. Um, and They have two leaders, unlike their the other ones. Yes, their leaders are... Elwe Singolo, which signifies Grey Mantle, and Olwe, his brother... Yes, Elway and Olway are the two leaders of the Teleri. Uh, the Noldor, whose leader is... Whose leader is Finway. And the Vanyar... Ingway. Ingway is the leader of the Vanyar. Now, Sam, do you want to talk briefly about, like, the characteristics of each of those three tribes? Yeah. Let's set the Teleri aside for now, because they split into multiple subgroups. So we won't even touch them for now. They have too many different characteristics with their subgroups. The Vanyar... Uh, they are the uh, the fair elves, the beloved of Monway and Varda. Few among men have spoken with them. They are the most enthusiastic about going over to the Holy Land. They are the favorite of most of the Valar. They never leave. They stay faithful the whole time. All of them go over. Um, I would I would say they're also I think the least like men. Yes, they are the least like men and the most like the angels. Exactly. The Vanyar are the closest to the Valar. And Sam, uh, you might know more than me. Are really any of the characters in like Lord of the Rings Vanyar? I don't think so. No, none of them are. Because okay. they never went over to Middle Earth. That's right. Although, I think Galadriel might be descended from Vanyar. Oh, yeah. None of them are like, you know, like pure Vanyar. Yeah, right? there's, there's none of them are pure Vanyar. Yeah, there is intermarriage and some people in Lord of the Rings have Vanyar blood. But so th all that's to say, though, that... Uh, I think it's good to try to tie these groups to, like, characters that the listener might be familiar with, even if they're not familiar with the Silmarillion. And uh, it is it is relevant to say that there really aren't any for the Vanyar. Like, they are the ones that are the most like, and like, uh, the Valar. They're they're the least like men. And next we have the, um, the Noldor. These ones are the main characters of the Silmarillion, overwhelmingly. They are the favorite of Aule because they're the ground elves. They're sort of like majestic dwarves, almost. I mean, they're not quite as good at a lot of that stuff as dwarves, but they love mining. They like living underground a lot, although not completely. Um, they are obsessed with language, like Tolkien, and with crafting poetry and with just like the written word and the spoken word. They're also obsessed with not just mining, but also fashioning mechanical things and making stuff. And then you have the Teleri. Let's go back to Quiviennen, where Ingwe, Finwe, Elwe, and Olwe all come back from uh, from Valinor, and they're like, guys, this place is sick. Like, we need to get out of here where it's dark, and we keep getting abducted and tortured. <laughs> this dude, Orome, you guys met him. He's going to take us. Uh, you know, it's going to be great. And most most of them are like, yes, this sounds great. We trust you. Uh, this is going to be good. We don't like it here anymore because it's it's scary and dark. But there is a small contingent uh, among each of the groups that's like, no, actually, we'd like to stay here. And that group is called the Avari, uh, which means the unwilling. And so this is really like... Uh, this is sort of the, the the first big break, right? The the Avari, it's a much smaller group than the rest of the elves, uh, w but the Avari don't want to go on the journey, so they do not join, and it is implied that a lot of them get uh, abducted and tortured by Melkor and turned into orcs. So the vast majority, though, of the elves, of the Quendi, are uh, called the Eldar, and... Uh, it's, it's helpful if you want to, honestly, to look up, uh, like, a tree that depicts all of these different divisions. Uh, in fact, I can include a link to one in the in the show notes. But as I was saying, the Quendi are all the elves. And then breaking off from that, you have the Eldar and the Avari. The Avari honestly don't matter that much in the context of this story. Like I said, most of them probably get tortured and turned into orcs. The Eldar are really all of the elves that, that, you, that you're familiar with. And... Of the Eldar, the Vanyar, Noldor, and Teleri are the sort of, those are each subgroups, basically, of the Eldar. Vanyar and Noldor, 
uh, all of them join Orome on uh, on the trip to to Amon. So all of the Vanyar and all of the Noldor, uh, which again the Vanyar are Ingwe's people, the Noldor are Finway's people. They all join Orome, uh, and they they uh, on the trip. All of the Teleri also join Orome, but at again the Teleri are by far the biggest group. So they kind of split up a little bit. So there's a bunch of them that go the whole way with Orome and the Noldor and the Vanyar, but there are a couple breaks here. So while they're going, and by the way, this is now we're really talking about the same world as the one that's in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and it's a it's a multi-year, it's like a long, long, long journey. And Orome also has other stuff going on. He has other tasks. So he's not with them the entire time. He'll join them for the journey, and then he'll leave. And when he leaves and pauses before coming back, you know, most of them keep marching onwards towards the sea. But the uh, the Teleri uh, look at the, sh- the the shadowy heights of the mountains and are afraid. Now, it's not, but it's not just any mountains, though. I just want to be clear that this is the mountains that they see that they are like, we don't, we don't want to keep going. Those are the Misty Mountains, the ones that are yes. in... In the you know on your your map of Middle Earth, right? It's like where Rivendell eventually is. Like that that is set along the Misty Mountains. You the know, same where, mountains that the Fellowship was afraid to go over. Precisely, yes. And but remember that they're traveling from the other direction because they're yes, coming they from are. the far east and they're going west. The mountains that a group of the Teleri see that they are uh, that they are scared of. It, those are the Misty Mountains. The group that sees the Misty Mountains, which again is a subgroup of the Teleri. Uh, and decides, you know what, we're good, we're going to stay here, we're not going to keep going on the trip. That group is called the Nandor. They're with Orome and the rest of the group traveling, but they decide to break off uh, fairly early in the journey. And an example of one of them would be Legolas. That's right, yeah. So that explains, though, why, uh, you know, Legolas and his people are from uh, what's called Mirkwood in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, which, if you look on a map, is directly east of the Misty Mountains. That's where his uh, his people had settled, you know, way, way back, uh, way, way back uh, at the very beginning of when they were first, you know, making the journey with Arame. So the, the trip keeps happening, right? So we've already lost this one group of the Teleri who are the Nandor or the Wood Elves. Uh, and we, we keep going. We cross over the Misty Mountains. We go, you know, past where the Shire will be in the future. Uh, we go into Beleriand, which by the time of Lord of the Rings is under the sea, much like Sebastian from The Little Mermaid. And uh, I actually just got back from my third viewing of the live action Little Mermaid. And I got to say, it gets better each time. <laughs> I cannot recommend it enough. It's a rich text. It's a rich. It is a rich text. If you like the other Disney live action ones, which I know we all do, you'll like this one even more. Yeah, they they, they don't at all strike me as all being like uncanny valley and heartless. <laughs> we should we should be mediators between uh, Rob De Sanctimonious and the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> Because we hate them both, and they hate each other. Rob, whose poll numbers are tanking. I also love that at Populism Updates, like a year ago, predicted that Trump was going to start calling him Rob. I know. It's it's the same as like when they predicted that Trump was going to give a blanket endorsement to Eric in the Missouri <laughs> yes. Senate race, and then he actually did it. Okay, let's talk about the Sindar now. Yes. So, if you recall, the, uh, the, the, the two leaders of the Tellery are Elway and Olway. Olway keeps going all the way over the mountains with one groove, and Elway gets distracted. We're now we're now just naturally sort of segueing to the next chapter. That's right. This is chapter four of Thingol and Melian. He hears this beautiful singing, um, and he finds this person, Melian, who is actually a Maya, so she is sort of a, a demigod, right? But she's in corporeal form, and uh, rain uh, physical raiment. That's right. And so, and so Elway immediately falls in love with her and decides, you know what? I'm good. RMA, you can keep going with all the other elves. I'm going to stay here. And uh, a bunch of his people are like, you know what? We're going to stay with you. And that group of people or elves is called the Sindar or the Grey Elves. And I would say that if the Noldor are the most important and sort of the main characters of the Silmarillion or the Quintus Silmarillion, I think the Sindar probably come in second. Uh, just because this character, Elway, who eventually is known as Thingol, it's the same guy, 
and his people, the Sindar, they dwell in what later becomes this kingdom called Doriath, which Thingol is the king of. And you might remember from Baron and Luthien that uh, the main character of that, Luthien, is the daughter of Thingol and Melian. A couple things now quickly about this. So Thingol and Melian get married. Again, Thingol is uh, Elway, same character, uh, but we'll call him Thingol from now on. Um, and uh, he is one of uh, he was one of those two leaders of the Teleri with his brother Olway. I think the first thing is that this is sort of the beginning of a very long trend in uh, in Tolkien's writing of uh, of men marrying sort of like greater beings, uh, w- like women who are sort of in some way like cosmologically you know more divine than they are in some way. Oh, I actually this is so funny. Sorry, I just noticed that on this page I had a note in different pen for my recent notes, which means that this like note is like a year plus old. Which says Thingol slash Elway plus Melian equals Sindar. There you go. Me trying yes. to piece it together myself a while ago. But I mean, you get it here with Thingol, who's a you know a, a, an elf marrying a, a Maya. You get it with Baron and Luthien. Baron is a man marrying uh, a, a I mean, I guess half elf, half Maya. You get it later with Aragorn and Arwen. Although Aragorn is also descended from, he's also actually descended from from elves at some level as well. But he is a man. And uh, marrying Arwen, who's who's an elf. So you always you you get this trend. I think I think we've introduced the important groups of the uh, the Quendi or the elves. I'm gonna just really briefly recap one more time, just for all you who are keeping track, and then we are gonna close out with chapter five here, uh, which is about the end of their journey over to. Uh, to Amon. So, just to briefly recap, now that we know some of those details, right? So, the Quendi are all of the elves. You can split that into the Eldar and the Avari. Uh, the Avari are that small group who don't join Orme and the other ones to go to Amon. Most of the elves, and certainly all the ones that that we are familiar with from the stories, are all the Eldar. Uh, you can split the Eldar into the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Teleri. And then you can split, and, uh, and so all of those groups, at least to start out with, join Orme to travel to Amon. And then you can split the Teleri into a couple other groups uh, who decided to not continue with Orme at some point in the journey. The first one was the Nandor, who uh, decided to stop east of the Misty Mountains, so that's pretty early in the journey. And again, uh, Legolas is descended from, uh, from, from that group. And then later in the journey, the Sindar, who are uh, the Thingol's people, basically, who uh, break off in um, Lorien, different from the Lothlorien of Lord of the Rings. Uh, they break Although off in, the naming convention, I mean, it's it's named after it. It's named after it, exactly. But, but Lorien, uh, where Thingol will uh, later found the kingdom of Doriath, is in Beleriand, which by the time of Lord of the Rings is under the sea to the west. Um, but so you have there uh, the Sindar and the Nandor are both subgroups of the Teleri who are distinguished by having not m- ever been to Amon. Those are the main groups. Again, we're going to really be talking the most about the Noldor and the Sindar. Uh, but you're going to also get some, you know, there's going to be obviously references to Vanyar, to some of the Teleri that are in Amon, uh, etc. But those are the groups, you know, you can look up a chart if, if it helps. It's it's confusing even when you're reading it. Uh, and uh, it so that's that's why having a genealogy is is really helpful. Uh, Sam, do you want to start talking about chapter five? I would love to start talking about chapter five of Eldamar and the Princes of the Elderly. Uh, yeah, this gets more into what we were talking about in the last chapter. It sort of segues nicely. Once the Vanyar and the Noldor make their way over to the sea. Ulmo pulls up to the sea, which makes sense because he sort of is the sea. And, and recall Ulmo is Poseidon, basically. Yeah, he's, he's Poseidon. But not really, because he's shy. He is like, okay, how am I going to get the elves over to um, the Blessed Land across the sea? And he uproots an island, initially anchors it in the Bay of Balar, and then he puts the elves on this island and slowly moves it across the sea as a vessel. 
much like Link might do in Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you like strand a Korok at sea. <laughs> you know what I wish? I wish that you could put Addison at sea. I wish that I could like ultra hand Addison to a boat. Honestly, <laughs> with the there, stupid there, fucking signs. There might be. <laughs> there might be. A, there might be a way. I mean, I've seen people who like will put characters in like get them to in contraptions like, in a contraption and then like launch it are you, you actually with, are you familiar with that tiktok trend the contraption no like like it'll be like a video like it'll be responding to a video of like a landlord being like i think actually tenants should tip us and then the thing will be like we're gonna put you in the contraption because <laughs> they can't say we're gonna we're gonna put you in the guillotine but yeah no i have seen the videos of like people carting like joshua and pura all the way to kakariko village yeah yeah that's what i was thinking of um but yeah basically that the tellery are not there um they were dwelling in east beleriand far from the sea <laughs> they you know this isn't even just the ones who got lost <laughs> Even the one, <laughs> which is an entire subgroup, the uh, the Tellery were so far behind the rest of them that they did not hear the summons of Ulmo. So while Ulmo is bringing this island boat thing across the water with the Vanyar and the Noldor, the Tellery, including the ones who are ready to go across the sea and and really want to, uh, you, what you can see from all of this is it sort of sets the Tellery up as like particularly like human like in certain capacities. Yeah, no, there there very much is, like, a dichotomy here of, like, the Vanyar being the most godlike, the Noldor kind of being in the middle, and, like, like having sort of godly qualities, but also having lots of human qualities. Yes. You see that, you know, in Feanor and everything. And both, then, the, both the Teleri and I think the Noldor are equally human in certain regards as the story moves through. Yeah, Whereas the yeah, Vanyar that, are just sort of, like... That may be true. The Teleri are just the biggest group, so it makes sense that they keep getting all broken up. Yeah, and lost. Um, but this is all to say that they remained for a long time by the coast of the Western Sea, while the tr- while the island was slowly floating across the ocean with the rest of the elves. And they are talking to Ose and Uinen. Recall, those are uh, Maiar, sort of lesser spirits of the, you know, who we keep talking about, who are uh, Ulmo's helpers, Ulmo's assistants. And because Ulmo was gone with the rest of the elves... He sends over Ose and Uinen, and he befriends this subgroup of Tellery who are waiting to go, and they stay for a long time by the ocean with uh, Ulmo's assistance, and this group of Tellery become enamored with the water, and that is one of the ways that they are remembered. Of this group, um, some of them end up making the journey when Ulmo eventually comes over, but some of them are persuaded to remain by uh, Ose, because uh, he likes them so much, in, in the shores of Middle-earth. They are called the Falothrim, the elves of the Falos, the first mariners in Middle-earth, and the makers of ships. Uh, Sirdon the Shipwright was their lord. So now we have another different subgroup of the Tellery. And Sam, do you remember who Cirdan the Shipwright is? Yeah, so Cirdan the Shipwright shows up in Lord of the Rings at the end. He's the last out of... Um, Middle Earth, because he's the elf who actually makes all of the boats that the elves throughout Lord of the Rings, when it mentions the elves going west, leaving the world, they go on boats made by Kierd on the shipwright and his group. Again, this is another different subgroup of the Tellery who were about ready to go over the waters, but were persuaded by Uinen and Ose to remain. And Kierd on the shipwright is also interesting because he is heavily implied to be one of, like, the original elves who first woke up in Quivienen. He is also one of the three elves who has one of the, the rings of power. I believe it's Círdan, Elrond, and Galadriel. Yeah, he's given a ring of power. He is, like, a, like technically an elf lord because he, he leads this group, the... Uh, the, the, the sea elves of... The, there's two groups of sea tellery. There's the sea tellery who go over and become the sea lovers in Valinor. And then the, the sea tellery who never go over, who are the master mariners of the world. And Círdan is like one of the OG, OG, OG elves. I don't believe there is any other named character who is like... Even the really, really... I mean, there are, right? But we don't know for a fact that like Ingwe was one of the original elves. Whereas it's heavily implied that Círdan is like one of the original elves. He is unspeakably old. Yes. And it's sick also that like his 
his identity is that he's a, a like a ship guy like he makes ships like i i love that it's not you know he's not like like oh i'm some huge you know lord i make very consequential decisions of life and death all the time which like maybe he does but he does so in the in the, <laughs> as a side effect of uh building ships yeah he's also like a good guy one thing oh, that you'll he, see as great. we get deeper into the Silmarillion is that not all of the elves. That's one of the things. I mean, me and Kenny always talk about this, but like one of the one of the critiques you hear about like Tolkien's writing is like morally black and white. That is not the case in this book at all. As you yeah, I mean, it's also in a lot of ways not the case in Lord of the Rings. Either. No, not all. Like Boromir. I mean, come on, learn media literacy. <laughs> there are almost countless uh, subgroups of elves. So a long time passes. The the Vanyar and the Noldor have sort of settled in uh, to various different places in Amon. Uh, Ingwe is still the leader of the Vanyar. Ingwe becomes a close servant of uh, Manwe, and he's called the High King of all the Elves. Uh, Finwe remains the, the the leader of the Noldor. And of course, of the Tellery, Olwe is the leader. Uh, recall that originally that there were two leaders, Elwe and Olwe. Elwe stayed in Middle-earth, in Beleriand, and is now, uh, he's married to Melian, the Maya, and he is uh, the leader of the Sindar. So he is not in Amon. Uh, the leader of the, all the Teleri that make it to Amon are Elwe's brother, Olwe. Uh, so Olwe, Finway, and Ingwe are the, the three leaders in Amon of the three different groups of elves that make it over there. A long time passes, and eventually uh, the all of the Teleri that uh, wanted to go to uh, to Amon eventually make it over. And the, the Noldor, uh, as I mentioned, or as Sam mentioned, are uh, into mining and into gems and stuff. So the Teleri arrive and the Noldor, you know, present them with lots of gems and stuff and, you know, say, welcome, you finally made it, basically. Uh, I always like that detail. It's, it's said several times, actually, that the Noldor in their mining and um, in, in their collection of gems and knowledge are never greedy, at least at this point, which is not something that will continue uh into the future but at this point they are uh extremely generous with their wealth uh both of you know of material wealth and with their their knowledge as they come up with an alphabet and that sort of thing um and uh so so they present the the teller that arrive with gems they say you know welcome we get here basically to the to the to the end of the section we wanted to talk about today you have really all of the major groups of elves uh, they awoke, and they are now in all of the places that they they need to be for the rest of the story. Um, I'd say there is, at the end of Chapter 5, we get discussion of a bunch of the characters of uh, the Noldor. Uh, and it, basically, all of the children of Finway and uh, his children's children. Um, but we are going to save that to talk about in our next episode about the Silmarillion, uh, because that is going to introduce Finway's eldest son, Feanor, who is arguably like the main character of the Quintus Silmarillion. And, uh, we don't want to introduce Feanor just yet because we want to talk about him more and him and all of his sons. That's all of the stuff we wanted to talk about for today. Again, that was chapters three through five of the Silmarillion. We, as I said, are really, really hoping to, uh, put some more episodes out there with some, uh, some greater frequency. I, we say that every episode, but we're actually going to try to make it happen this oh, time. Oh, it's going to happen. Uh, we have lots of plans for uh, cool stuff for you all, but uh, that is going to do it for today. So, Sam, as always, this was a great time. Thanks for uh, thanks for talking. Yeah, thank you too. Hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.